Hello everybody and welcome into episode number 45 of the Bible 2021 podcast. We're reading Acts chapter 17 today and our focus is on evangelism in the first century. I want to welcome new listeners in Harare, Zimbabwe, Talangana, India, New York, New York, Dallas, Texas, and Orlando, Florida. Our website is Bible2021.com. That's Bible2021.com. I would invite you to check it out. We've got show notes there and a way to contact us with questions and comments. I also would encourage you to leave us a review or share the show on social media. Today, our subject is very similar to yesterday's focus, but also quite different. Because here's the the thing, the mission is still the same for Paul and Silas, sharing the gospel all around the known world at the time, but we will see today that the good news is spread in a quite different way from what we saw yesterday in Acts chapter 16. Many people seek to understand and emulate the powerful method of evangelism found in first century church, but when you actually look at what they did and how the good news spread, you're going to find that there was no single overall overarching method. The Word of God spread in so many ways that there's just no way to copy exactly what the first century church did in terms of its method. I actually think that's by design. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how to have a church service or what steps to take to lead somebody to Jesus exactly or how to spread the gospel throughout a city, but it gives us multiple examples of gatherings of believers and shows us so many different ways that people come to faith in Jesus. Yesterday, we saw people get saved by sitting down and sharing the good news conversationally with them at the river and also by seeing a great example of character under persecution. Today, we're going to see several different ways that different groups of people, different nationalities come to faith. Well, let's read our chapter. This is Acts chapter 17, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a large number of God-fearing Jews, as well as a number of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down, and they've come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, Jesus. The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, and the people here were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go out to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. 
Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him, and some said, What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, He seems to be a preacher of foreign deities, because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spend their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect, for as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which it was inscribed to an unknown god. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times in the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, We'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica and proclaim Jesus as the resurrected Messiah in the Jewish synagogue there, and several people believe, forming the basis for the church that will receive the first and second letters of the Thessalonians. Then Paul and Silas move on to Berea, where the same thing happens, this time with better results because the noble Bereans actually follow along with Paul in the Old Testament and see that he's proclaiming the truth about Jesus. Next stop after a bit of riots and persecutions is Paul solo in Athens. This time Paul chooses a different tactic. While he continues to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues to the Jewish people, he's now also talking to the people in the Greek marketplaces, which eventually gets him to address the many philosophers and movers and shakers in Athens, where Paul proclaims to them the good news of Jesus raised from the dead. Many of them, maybe even most, scoff at him and consider his message just crazy. But a few others want to hear more about the resurrection of the dead, and some of them are even convinced by the word and are saved, becoming believers. Well, what's the centerpiece of Paul's message to these non-Jewish people? Jesus, raised from the dead. The same message for both groups. 
but greatly different methods from town to town and people to people. The method is not the important thing. The message is the important thing, the powerful thing, and the supernatural thing. As Paul tells us in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's not the method that has the power. The way we do it, it doesn't have the power. It's the message. And brothers and sisters, we would do well to remember that. Well, let's uh, close out with some wisdom from David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who says, When the disciples were sent out, they all preached Jesus in the resurrection, but they didn't stop at that. Paul, in his preaching, says that he had a hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. That was the kind of thing they all preached, not only the resurrection of Jesus, but our resurrection also, as Paul put in his famous sermon at Athens at the Areopagus, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man who he has ordained, where he has given assurance unto everybody in that he has raised him from the dead. That's Acts 17.31. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a proclamation and announcement to the effect that God will judge the whole world by this person, which simply means that in this life and in eternity, our fate is decided by our attitude to Jesus. If you say that Jesus is only a man and like the Jews are a bit annoyed with him or dismiss him and whatever, then you will receive judgment. And that judgment is eternal punishment. But if you believe that God has raised up this Jesus and made him a prince and a savior and that it is in him alone that you can have forgiveness of sins and become a child of God with the hope of glory, why? The verdict is that you will have all you have believed. Amen to that. Let's close with our verse for February, Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. Well, friends, may it be a blessed Lord's Day for you today. Good day to you and Godspeed.